0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of a New Books in Architecture. My name is Brant Tate, and I am hosting the channel today. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of architecture, and we chat with its author. Today's book is entitled Time Matters, Invention and Reimagination in Built Conservation, the Unfinished Drawing and Building of St. Peter's at the Vatican. It was written by Federica Goffi assistant professor of architecture at Carleton University's Azraeli School of Architecture and Urbanism. This book fills a blind spot in current architectural theory and practice, proposing a hybrid approach which merges architectural and conservation theory to offer the reader a counter viewpoint to common understandings of preservation as a singular moment from the past which has been frozen and brought forward to the present. Through a micro-historical study of a Renaissance concept of reservation, a theoretical framework to question the issue of conservation as a creative endeavor arises. It focuses on Tiberio Alfarano's 1571 iconography of St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican, into which a complex body of religious, political, architectural, and cultural elements is woven. By merging past and present temples' plans, Alfarano created a track drawing questioning the design pursued after Michelangelo's death in 1564, opening a gaze towards other possible future imaginings. Federico Goffi's book further uncovers how the drawing was acted on by Carlo Maderno, who literally used it as a physical substratum for his new design proposals, which completed the renewal of the temple in 1626. This research shows how architectural and conservation practices can be merged in contemporary renovation. By creating hybrid drawings, the retrospective and prospective gaze of built conservation forms a continuous and contiguous reality, where a pre-existing condition engages with future design, joining multiple temporalities within a continuity of identity, the study might provide a paradigmatic and timely model to retune contemporary architectural sensibility when transforming a building of recognized significance. Federica Goffi, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you very much, Brian, for the opportunity. So I'm very pleased to be able to talk about, you know, the work that I've done for my research and the book.
0: Great. Uh, Federica, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Yes, I was born in Genoa, which is a very historical city, and I studied architecture there. And when I finished, I, I stayed at the School of Architecture for about four years and was really focused on very much pure conservation, very specialized on historic timbers. And very soon after that period, I realized that even though Obviously, conservation is a very important topic in Italy, and very you know very well done. I felt that you know the room for imagination within historic context uh, was very limited, and I became intrigued with the idea of pursuing a PhD in architecture to be able to articulate a position to mediate you know the necessities of conservation with those of you know imaginative design in an historic context. So I looked for you know opportunities and I moved to the United States where I studied at the Virginia Polytechnic Institute and in State University. And I was particularly uh, studying at the Washington Alexandria Architecture Center. And uh, my mentor was Professor Marco Pascal And I worked with him on this topic for eleven years, which then became the book in two thousand thirteen.
0: Wow, How did you come to focus specifically on uh, St. Peter's itself?
1: Yeah, there was um, a series of questions that were being asked in the program by you know Dr. Frascari and the other committee members. Uh, So the initial question that I posed, I wanted to understand if a building can even be significantly altered and yet uh, maintain its identity, you know, really think of it as the same building despite every possible change. And and so, can we still talk about conservation in some way? Um, and so, thinking of conservation as a form of invention and imagination instead of preservation. And by asking the questions, I was being asked questions back, you know. So, the question was, uh, you know, can you think of a building that, you know, has changed that much? and maintain identity, and narrow it to a a group of buildings. So St. Peter's was one of these buildings that I thought about because in the Renaissance period, in a period of 120 years, starting in 1506, it was almost completely disassembled and reassembled the way that I talk about it. Most architectural historians have been talking about destruction and reconstruction. And uh, gradually, you know, as you're looking at a topic that is so vast, obviously, and you can't be quite an expert on each and every architect and each and every, you know, drawing and action that took place on that site over one hundred and twenty years, I think there was the challenging question when I was asked, can you tell the story by looking at just one drawing? And I really took the question to heart and I, I picked one drawing. Uh, you could almost say by instinct because I didn't know, you know, how much will come out of focusing on this specific drawing, which was by a beneficiary clerk and not an architect. And so then I, you know, the approach became one of microhistory, you know, following Carlo Ginsburg's method, and you know, kind of it unraveled from there.
0: Great. Well, let's um, get into the chapters of the book. Now, I notice in the preface you um, talk about a, a blind spot in current theory and practice, um, which we'll get into as we go into it. But you also suggest the book can be read in, in seven days, and then use that as a, a structure. Is there anything uh, particularly significant about that choice? Yeah,
1: well, you know, because it is, um, you know, two things. One, I was really playing with the idea that you know, technically it could be read. Really, in a week's time, and hopefully, we change, you know, open up uh, other approaches or ways of looking at conservation. And also, because obviously, St. Peter's being uh, a Catholic building, there were some references to the idea of the creation in seven days, and the fact that on the seven day, God rested and conservation began.
0: Right,
1: okay. So it's a little bit of a playful, game.
0: Okay. On that concept. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. Um, Now the prologue sort of sets up the book, and I'm wondering if you could explain your position here um, on the relationship Mm -hmm. of of buildings to time and memory, and how this uh, leads us to your project.
1: Yes. Well, um, I wanted to, you know, make sure that even though the book is really focused in a very specific time period, a very historical building, Um, and then the drawing is really dating from 1571. This is a story that I guess is relevant, not just uh, for us to understand history, but really to think about the present, because I do think of St. Peter as a contemporary building in many ways, in the sense that it's a building that has gone across time, and we could say that to this day, it's an unfinished uh, building, even though it's complete at the moment. But it should, you know, remain open to possible changes if something happens. And I wanted to, you know, kind of expand in the introduction and also in the conclusions to other examples uh, to be able to situate uh, the thinking. So I had to explain how, even though, let's say, when we think about adaptive reuse, so buildings that are modern industrial buildings. We're very open to change, but when, you go, when we actually move to consider you know, buildings that have you know, significant heritage value, you know, any possible change is suddenly seen with doubt. And yet, most of these buildings, you know, some of the very paradigmatic ones, just like St. Peter's, wouldn't even exist in the form in which they exist now had they not a- been able to adapt uh, with time uh, and, you know, change, uh, you know,
0: their own physical presence. I see. I guess that's Yeah. yeah. Okay. And can you then move into the first chapter that, that sort of introduces the specifics of this uh, microhistory and, and maybe explain to us what a microhistory really is?
1: Yes. So, um, microhistory is really the idea of studying an anomaly, or effect diverse, uh, which is the case with this specific drawing. It's, um, I guess, a method for the study of history, but it's well illustrated in the work of Carlo Ginsburg. There's a beautiful article on that, if one wanted to familiarize themselves which is called One um, Microhistory, Two or Three Things that I Know About It by James Burke. But in my case, I guess the anomaly was really this drawing by Tiberio Alfarano from 1571. And it's an anomaly because Tiberio Alfarano was not an architect. He's not per se acknowledged, uh, and actually, it's not acknowledged at all as a designer, You know, as somebody who was, you know, of course, he was not the architect of St. Peter's, and yet, I'm arguing through the writing of the book that his drawing had a role in the design process. And he was drafted you know, a few years after Michelangelo died in 1564. And um, he actually took a print by Ken candy product was from 1569 and literally started drawing over this print. And the fact of drawing over Michelangelo's plan is such impossible editing and um the drawing itself you know if one could see uh, the original and in the, you know in the book i was able to publish the plate in color um and i, I got permission from that from the Vatican, you can see that the drawing and the use of color is also that diverse in terms of you know other architectural drawings from the, from the period there is nothing quite like it so it's a decoupage in the sense that you work on a of you know different sheets of papers of different dimensions that are glued on on a wood board, and then on top of that he placed this print, and then he started drafting first in pencil, um, then coloring. And some of the coloring techniques come from icon painting, which had to do with his background in theology, and he's really able to draft something that goes beyond you know the accuracy of an architectural drawing to also encompass. You know, meaning and significance for the use of color and the way in which he was drawn. So the drawing, per se, um, it doesn't represent a particular time condition. At St. Peter's you can't say that drawing is what St. Peter was in 1571. It goes before and after that period. And it's really embodying some of the essential guidelines or rules in the game to devise the final plan. So I was really trying to, I guess, make a point as to why this drawing was so important also to establish the identity of St. Peter's through the design changes.
0: Great, thank you. I think there was also quite a lot of gold leaf in the drawing, is that correct?
1: Yes, yes, it's actually gold paint. You know, initially I thought it was gold leaf because also, you know, for the documentary evidence they were talking about, but then when I explained the arguments at the Archive of St. Peter's, which is literally located inside the Basilica, in one of the piers that support the main dome, and I met with all the, you know, director of archive, you know, I had the opportunity to meet also the Archbishop of St. Peter's, and once I explained to them all the ideas about the drawing, they wanted to make sure that i knew exactly what each material was and and they actually were able to do a more detailed assessment and establish that in this case it was actually called paint and you know i was talking or i was very interested in the colors and in the significance So gold was used to refer to this idea of everlastingness and it was used to indicate the old plan of st peter's which um in a I guess in a literal sense it's no longer, you know, if you enter the main basilica, you wouldn't be able to perceive obviously any part of the old St. Peters, but the fact that he indicated in this drawing the gold leaf makes you think that, you know, the old basilica was still present within the new. And only recently in the fifties and sixties, nineteen sixties, sixties, when they did archaeological excavation, it was able they were actually able to figure out that the literal footprint of the original basilica is preserved underneath New St. Peter's. So now you can actually go uh, below at this level, and you can see truncated columns and bases of the original footprint. So Alfarano was indicating the literal presence of Old St. Peter's with the gold.
0: That's very interesting, and I think that leads us well to the the next chapter that talks about architecture's twinned body, both the the physical building and then this sort of effigy or the the other um, reality of the the drawing.
1: Yes. yeah, that's one of my favorite, I guess, in terms of argument. I think it's it's really important because you know initially I was really looking at this relationship between drawing and building, how they build, the the drawings themselves you know, serve in changing the building, but also serve in maintaining this continuity of the identity of the building. In fact, if you look at St. Peter's now, you don't see as much of the change. You're not able to really envision it. But if you start looking at the sequence of drawings done during that period from 1505 to uh, 1626, and you put them into almost like a visual sequence, which I did for myself, actually a series of videos to see the transitions between the drawings, you actually see the changes. And you, you start to understand all of the thinking that goes behind each of the changes, while if you look at the building right now, it might appear as if at the standstill. So this relationship between the two, in terms of revealing the story, is really important. The other thing that was really fascinating for me, which I didn't know until you know, I, I actually went to Rome for the first time, looking for this drawing, and I found out that this particular drawing, unlike many others, is kept in the Basilica. And it's in one of the piers. is the Veronica Pier, which is the first that was actually founded by Bramante in 1506 when they started the renewal. So you have to go up into above the vaults, where they have these archives. And there's a series of four archives above these um, barrel vaults. And that's where many you know, or I guess selected drawings and models have been kept to this day. So this twin nature is also revealed in how the drones are still present uh, in the building.
0: That's so interesting and I I particularly appreciated the uh, analogy or or metaphor with the king's two bodies and and how the effigy um, allowed the continuation between different instances of the physical body.
1: Yes. Uh Yeah, because the drawing was, I guess, allowing to resolve, you know, this moment of transformation, which is also dramatic at the same time. You know, even Alfarano, who was actually, you know, the author of the drawing, he was commissioned to, I guess, break down the memories at the time of the transformation of the building itself. So, in his drawing, he draws both the Olsen Peters and the Saint Peters, so there are two plans in it. So before and after, and most of the relics in the drawing and significant architectural elements, they are all drawn in two places, kind of before uh, and
0: after. So this this sounds and, like it's uh, this sounds like it's part of um, the hollowed configuration you're talking about in the third chapter. How Alfarano's drawing yes. sort of mediates between the two conditions.
1: Yes. Yes, so there are a lot really going to, you know, it, it really reveals what were the elements that they decided had to be maintained, you know. So the Pope uh, Julius II, he gave prescriptive rules to Bramante where he said, you will not be able, be able to open ground in the main nave of St. Peter's, the transept, and the apse. So if you actually, you know, you, you take a plan, you know, and you look at that area, you start to realize that that was you know, the area where there was an understanding of complete conservation, but this complete conservation had to be um, above the ground because of the borders that were in St. Peter's, which was not just a church, but was also a cemetery. So most of what had to be conserved was below ground. So in that area they couldn't build. So if you actually look at the plan and understand what's going on there, then you realize that Bramante placed the eastern main piers right underneath the arms of the cross. Then if you take that distance, you know, the, the main nave and you move it in the western direction, you figure out the position of the the other piers, and essentially those distances determine the challenge for the vaulting of St. Peter's.
0: I see, that that is interesting. Yeah. That was the constraint that they were working with.
1: Yes, that was the main constraint, of course. Uh, the other one was not move uh, the tomb of St. Peter, which, you know, Bramante initially had done a design where he was reorienting the plan of the whole church, which would have required moving, uh, you know, uh, potentially you know, disturbing the place where the burial of Peter was believed to be. And so that was vetoed by the Pope and he added these other rules as well. So there was there were elements of conservation obviously. So they were negotiating, I guess, you know, the preservation of certain memories while allowing for this new image to emerge. And um, you know, Alfarano had this role of really trying to, you know, preserve these memories as well. And I guess the wonderful thing is that he brought a manuscript that goes with the drawing from 1571. So you can actually read the manuscript, look at the drawing, and in this going back and forth, there is a relationship between the words and the images that really activates the drawing and the reading of it, which is also quite a unique circumstance in the architectural history of the period.
0: So there's almost three parts: there's a, a, a text narrative, uh, a visual drawing, and then the, the physical body as well. Yes. And is is that part of the uh, stratigraphic drawings? That uh, sort of archaeological term, or, or is that sort of another step again?
1: Yeah, there was um, another step because there was. This was probably the most remarkable for me, kind of you know discovery when. I was at the Uffizi, and I, I look at Moderno, Carlo Maderno's drawings um, from the 1610, 1620, and then, you know, he finished the Eastern edition of St. Peter's. He completed the new, the new Basilica in 1626. And when I look at these drawings, I found some that were representing only a portion of the plan, only the portion that he was going to be adding in this Eastern arm of the cross. And these portions were drawn at a different scale from his other drawings, so they couldn't be matched to you know anything else. They were these kind of loose fragments, uh, I should say, loose members. And I it kind of I had the the thought, oh my God, what if he actually was drawing directly on Alfarano's drawing to be able to fulfill some of the of these rules. Um, that were important for the conservation of St. Peter's. So, unfortunately, I couldn't move the drawings from the Uffizi to St. Peter's, but I went back and forth many times measuring. And it turns out that he was laying, Maderno was laying out his own drawings on that drawing to complete the design. And so, the idea of the stratigraphic drawing is this idea of the layers of the paper on top of each other as much as we have layers of buildings on top of each other. Because at St. Peter's, you know, now we have Moose St. Peter's, and if you go archaeologically, as they did in 1950s-60s, they discover old St. Peter is still present, and there is more, you know, more layers. Obviously, there is even a Roman layer underneath St. Peter's. So there is this vertical strata, uh, which reveals time on this site.
0: That's fascinating. In the fourth chapter, you also talk about a, a shift from the s- sort of macro presentation drawings to the micro working drawings. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yes. Um, so I was talking about, again, this uh, particular drawing by Maderno, and now it's working um, in terms of his, uh, his sensibility. And if you look at the edges, of the plan drawings, how he's sort of very much aware of this game of multiple authors, right? And he was not the sole architect of St. Peter's. There have been many architects of St. Peter's. You know, often people today talk about Michelangelo as the architect of St. Peter's, because obviously he designed a very significant part of the new. But there have been so many involved. And I think that Moderna is the first one that somehow acknowledges in this um, scene of the drawings, in the scene of the building, almost like um, he wants to reveal this game. In fact, when he finished the Eastern addition, there were a series of steps that you had to go through to pass from the portion that he designed to the portion, which is the centralized plan, that was designed by Michelangelo. So you had to elevate yourself a series of steps. And in the barrel vault above you, you would also see a change in the height. So it is as if the two portions of the church were misaligned, and they were—I believe—they were misaligned intentionally. That it was not a mistake, and it was trying to reveal, you know, this sense of the multiplicity of members of the church, but also multiplicity of authorship, time, you know, and this notion of corporation or corporate body in other building was assembled. Instead, after his death, he was actually criticized and even accused of not being able to align the two parts of the building. And every effort was done to hide uh, these, I guess, the seams between the parts. And the only part that is still visible now is actually the vault. So I was trying to draw attention to some of these edges in the paper, and even the way that he was working where, you know, his, uh, his drawings in the south, he was always drawing these members, and every time he drew the centralized portion, which belonged to Michelangelo, and his own eastern portion, they were on different sheets of paper. And they were never permanently mounted together.
0: That is interesting. Um, yeah. So would you say that he was intentionally trying to create a question or a a bit of ambiguity that would would, um, call attention to that change? Is that the idea?
1: Yes, yes. So to me, this this notion of multiplicity instead of singularity. You know, I think in the Renaissance, uh, you know, earlier Renaissance, um, there still was this idea that the building had to come together in the end as a whole where, you know, it had this kind of anthropomorphic character, you know, so the idea of architectural anthropomorphism uh, required that you wouldn't be able to see the game of assembling parts. It had to be completely hidden, right? Right. Uh, And I think that moderno, to me, almost reveals a more, in a sense, more modern sensibility, you could say, in actually making visible the joints, something that his own contemporaries did did not uh, understand or appreciate, per se. Like, in a much more contemporary game, you could think of, um, you know, the way that we, if you you think of the surrealist game, you know, the idea of adding parts and really revealing the game, you know, of different authors in different time periods. That's where, you know, if you take it to an extreme, in a more modern period, that's where you would see the kind of, you know, differentiating, um, you know, some pages and the So I kind of saw the beginning of that in the way that he was working in the building and in the drawings.
0: Okay, thank you for that. Um, I also wanted to sort of call attention to our listeners to the wonderful uh, color plates here in the center of the book. Um, you've got some great details of several of these drawings, um, some by Bramante, uh, Alfarano's plan, um, as well as some of your own work. D- did you want to mention a bit about some of these um, sort of intercollage uh, efforts?
1: Uh, yes. Well, you know, the, the intercollage uh, was also part of the, the working process for me, um, because, you know, when I, for example, when I, I read that the Pope uh, gave these prescriptions about you know which portion it's the one plate number ten uh, yes. where it said you cannot you know open the ground and the new foundations in the main nave and the transept. I you know I, I printed a copy of of Ramon's drawing and I cut out that portion. And when I cut out that portion, is when I first I first really saw the position of the main peers, they were really underneath, you know, the, the transept and really tangential to the to the transept themselves. So it kind of gave me an idea about how they arrived at the position of the main peers. So they were a, a way of exploring some of the ideas and a way of understanding and they, they really made me, you know, progress with the research. So they're not just illustrations, they were kind of a method of working. Right. So not just by writing and research, but also by drawing. And then what you see there in the same plate, I also took the Moderna drawing that I found in Uffizi, which I believe was executed directly in Alprano's drawing, and I placed it on top to actually show the way that our Moderna himself was working. And in fact, in this particular drawing, the one that I'm showing here, you know the, the new facade that Moderno designed, and this addition was ending exactly where old St Peter was ending. So there's a perfect alignment uh, between them based on my measurements.
0: Right, that's so interesting. I'm glad you uh, got to share that part of your research and working methods as well as simply illustrating it. It gives a good insight into the process. Um, I also noticed that there at the end, plate 11, you're um, bringing in more modern uh, architecture with the reference to Carlo Scarpa and mm-hmm.
1: Um
0: Could you talk a little bit maybe yeah. about the, the modern connections you're drawing from this older work? Yeah.
1: Well, you know, Carlos Carpa was one of my, you know, when I started thinking about dissertation, I thought maybe I could work on Carpa, but at the time, his um, drawings were not available. They were still um, kept, you know, privately by the family, and then re- only recently they became. They are now, you know, accessible, and uh, I was very interested in, I guess, Carpa's work. Because, of course, the way that he has worked within, you know, historic buildings and, uh, you know, particularly the castle vacuum, there is this incredible, you know, sense in how he's intervening, you know, in the creation, for example, of joints and how every time he's, he's adding something, he leaves a gap between new and old elements. And this gap is almost like a post that makes you reflect and think about time and understand, you know, there is a moment of change here. Something is happening. So, and also in terms of these representation techniques. So, for example, for one of the drawings that I did include in the book, I think, where it's um, um, an interior window at the castle Vecchio, I guess in the first room as you entered the museum, he took a photograph and then he started drawing on top of the photograph. And um, so he's using the building almost as his canvas, you know, and then adding layers by drawing over the photograph the way that he's adding layers by, you know, adding new windows and mullions onto the building. It's also interesting, like the way that he dealt with, you know, thresholds, uh, where depending on which direction you're crossing the threshold, you will be seeing from a more modern contemporary perspective moving into the past. If you if you were to move in the opposite direction, it will cross, I guess, the historical moment first, and then move into the present. So there is this kind of reversal of time. And I'm interested, very interested in his work. In fact, I'm hoping you know, for the future to actually go back now that the archives are accessible and the drawings are accessible to actually spend more time on this work.
0: Yes, it is very interesting work. I've been deeply interested in it myself. Um, Mm -hmm. I do think it's an interesting example, and maybe this moves us into the fifth chapter about restoring the corporate body. Um, You use the term heteroglossia, if I've got that correct, uh, versus a unity of style. Um, And I think Scarpa, as well as Alferano and others are are using this sort of mixture. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk about how that allows you to create uh, the identity.
1: Hmm. Yes. Well, in the case of, um, I guess, St. Peter's, really the idea of the corporate body was the idea of, uh, you know, what the church really represented. So the idea of the church uh, was represented through this corporational nature, which meant that the church was formed by Christ as the head, and then all the members of the church, but not not just all the present members, but also all the past and future members. So in that sense, the building has to make room for time as well. So it's not a representation of a certain time period, or a certain group of people that represent the Christianity at a certain time. I guess almost, you could almost say every generation or every period who technically have an ability to express their own voice and their own, um, you know, sense of what um, what the church is at any point in time, and I think that was that was incorporated and understood in the Renaissance period, where you know the word restoration, uh, which was in Latin was instauratio, to restore, really meant to give new beginnings. So every addition, every alteration was part of the process of these multiple beginnings in time. And so, if you look at it this way, you know, instead then, I guess, the, this concept of unity of style, uh, that, let's say, for example, the restoration concept, which is, um, which was really introduced by Violet Leduc, is it, much more modern. Um, if you look at it historically, I believe it had more to do with this etroglousia, so this ability to represent multiplicity rather than singularity, which I think is also visible, obviously, in the work of Carlos Carta.
0: Right. Now, what role does the Spolia um, have in that process?
1: Um, You mean at at St. Peter's or...?
0: Well, in St. Peter's specifically, yes, but uh, if you want to expand on that, feel free.
1: (laughs) Yes. Well, um, at St. Peter's, for example, you know the spolia were handled very carefully. In fact, that's the reason why I talk about it: the process of disassembly and reassembly, because every element was carefully documented. Um, there was a, a specific column, which was the Holy Column, where Alfarano writes about in his, um, you know, manuscript. And he says, it gives very precise instruction about the um, description about the time, the hour, when the column was moved, and how the operation almost, you know, it went from where it was located to where it was meant to be in one single and continuous event. It was never stored somewhere because it was considered a, a sacred relic. Uh, it was not just an architectural relic, but it was considered to be actually a relic of, of contact because Christ would have leaned against this particular column. So um, many of these architectural elements, it is, is also had a sociological significance. Uh, in the work of Scarpa, as well as in the way that he deals with coils is very poetic. One of my favorites is the way this is dealing with this um, portal, Uh, That he found in the courtyard of the School of Architecture in Venice, and this portal was laying down on the ground. And instead, then let's say restoring the portal to original condition and placing it again vertical, it kept it horizontal in the courtyard, and it transformed it. So it's a very well-known detail, and he's creating this series of um, almost. stepping into the portal with a series of elements that are made in concrete and then there is the water laying on top of it and it's kind of reflecting the sky above it. And to me that that particular detail, for example, is very paradigmatic of his work where he's really talking about a history that we cannot literally physically re- re-enter other than through a kind of contemplation. So, you know, this entrance of the school becomes a place of contemplation you know, when people sit around this particular detail, for example. Um, And, you know, in all of his work, I guess, he he talks about this quite directly. And um, he says it will never actually reconstruct a detail the way in which it was done originally because it will be a false or a copy. And also, you know, restoring uh, an element to an original position in itself may constitute a false. So it would rather, I guess, tell a new
0: story for the for the same element. Right. I think that that uh, is a very interesting detail, and that sort of notion of of falseness or um, maybe an incorrect or or a singular uh, interpretation of something leads us to the, the next chapter, which is about framing the icon, and this notion of skin deep conservation versus an imagination of built conservation, where you talk about uh, clothing mm-hmm. and uh, that sort of surface. Uh, Approach. Can you speak about that chapter a little?
1: Yes. In that one, I was thinking about, you know, a little bit our obsession of maintaining uh, buildings in their, you know, entirety in the sense of the material aspect and um, this notion of almost like uh, a photographic memory of architecture, right? We have this sense of how buildings look like. And they have to look like exactly in the same way, you know, and any change, any upgrade, whether it's structural or of any kind, it's actually hidden behind this facade and this image of the building. So, for example, at St. Peter's, you know, what was deemed valuable and worthy of conservation was were certain Um, very critical elements, so their concept of memory was very different from the one we have today, which is the concept of photographic memory. Um, And for example, in that case, the most precious memories had to do with the cemetery grounds, not what what was being raised up and above the ground. And at the same time, I think, for example, facadism, which is something that has happened since the 1960s and still happens today, is also a demonstration of this, you know know, in, in this case you know buildings actually do get turned down but we still keep this idea of the facade or the image of the building so i wanted to i guess challenge a little bit that notion and really ask the question what is memory and possibly memory for any building will be something different you know was also part of my i guess my own research with this um, work, I thought I, I could possibly arrive at it, some kind of new general theory, and then the more I started the building, the more I knew about it, I realized, you know, the problem is having a general theory. <laughs> because we need to have a more detailed and careful reading of the specific building we are looking at to understand what entails memory for this, um, for this site and for these edifice. And it could be different. Um, depending on the period that the pe- building the building belongs to or the multiple periods that the building belongs to, um, you know, some of the the cultural origin of the building and even our, I guess, our present context, obviously, has a, has a big impact on how we work um, in any historic context.
0: Absolutely. And I think not only are there um, quite a lot of different sort of Uh, bits of evidence of memory within the different uh, periods for the building and all those specific details. But then each person who interacts with those details in any way will have their own memories, uh, which all sort of overlap uh, one another. Uh, For our listeners, I also wanted to mention some of the uh, interesting images in this chapter, um, such as a a Corinthian capital, capital, which is peeking out from inside a a Baroque uh, stucco sort of vestment, as you describe Mm it. Uh, which I find very interesting, as well as a a plan uh, which superimposes um, several of the layers of history from the Circus of Nero through the old basilica to the new, uh, and also showing how they relate to each other in section. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the the book is quite visually rich that way.
1: Yes. I thought, you know, for me, um, you know, without the images, we wouldn't be able to tell, you know, the same story. I was obviously very inspired by the way that Arfolano work, where really text and image uh, have a very close relationship. And even though actually many of the ones that I published are actually quite well known, I still thought they should be there and they should be looked at the same time as I guess you in the text. And they, they really become a demonstration in themselves. Yes, especially it, I guess
0: the publishing was like canvas yeah is especially helps in in light of the the new ideas you're putting forward to see those um, sort of well known images in in a new way so that's really great
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh well this leads us to our, our last of the seven chapters before the conclusion where you're talking about uh, simultaneity and sort of the the title chapter i guess um do you want to mm-hmm. talk about that one yes I guess that was uh i
1: guess my favorite i would you know, I was challenged by Marco Frascari, he said, uh, if you're talking about time, you should never use that word. And he said, then you, you really get around to trying to define it. And uh, it, I, I felt like he couldn't have been more right because uh, it turns out, you know, for example, during that period, and in relation to the architecture of the building, There was a very specific concept of time that they were talking about. So I talk about the sempiternal nature of built conservation. So sempiternity was this theological concept that had to do with, uh, you know, the difference between God's eternity and, I guess, the time that belongs to human things. So sempiternity was the concept of a quasi eternity. So building it as a beginning but then it never finished because it continues to exist until the end of time. And uh, obviously the concept was that in order to to continue to exist, the building has to also renew itself within time. And uh, I did try to really kind of sum up in that chapter and bring together all the other chapters to really anchor the argument of time as an essential design concept within architectural heritage sites.
0: Yeah. Right. That, that is a very interesting idea and uh, quite intriguing. Um, I'm wondering if you can finish uh, the book You're talking about the role of ambiguity and the unfinished, uh, which we haven't quite covered yet.
1: Yes. Um, that has to do, you know, about how how do we allow for multiple stories, multiple traces of memory to be present within the same building. So for example, um, you know, if you look if one looks very carefully at the plan of Al-Farano, this notion of ambiguity where ambul is two, so a dual nature of certain elements that can be read in more than one way. And I give the the example of, um, that was brought up by Gombrich as well on the rabbit and duck um, ambiguous images or so these double images where, you know, the, the image is half a duck and half a rabbit, and you can read it one way or the other. So St. Peters, you know, when you look at it uh, in the plan of Alfarano, can be read both with old St. Peters and new St. Peters at the same time. And these older New Saint Peter's have these two plans, which is the central and the longitudinal. And um, you know it's very interesting how architectural scholarship, you know, for almost a century now, has been discussing um, whether in the Renaissance they wanted to arrive at a central or a longitudinal plan. And different scholars hold different positions. And you know, for me, really I hold the position that it's neither because it's both. Right. So both ideas are present in the drawing, and uh, you know there are theological reasons behind it, but there is also the idea of the two churches and the two stories that are being merged together. So this ambiguity in the drawing, and it's really important because sometimes the very same wall is the memory of both an old and a new element, and it kind of opens, I guess, these gaps where you can read uh, multiple stories within the same building.
0: And I suppose this also uh, leaves an opening for uh, f- future work to take sort of the same position because it, it is in fact unfinished. Something will happen in the future. There might be new new restorations or new um, additions.
1: Yes. Uh, Carlos Carpa does the same with the same detail that I talked about a little earlier when he's drawing on this photograph. And in the in the actual building, what it's doing is adding these new um, mullion uh, and a new a new window element on the interior of the building, and yet through a kind of uh, I visual synaesthesis, you can still read the original build the original window element as complete because we are kind of interpreting information as we look at something. So even though we don't see the entirety of the original, we can still perceive it as a whole. So it's also playing through this kind of ambiguities, you know, two elements that overlap through a kind of, you know, metaphoric transparency so that you can read two temporal conditions at the same time.
0: That's so fascinating. Uh, Well, Federica, we've taken up a lot of your time, um, and I I really appreciate it, and I hope our listeners do as well. Um, Before we go, I'm wondering if you can uh, let us know what you're working on now.
1: Yeah, well, I'm preparing for a couple of conferences. You know, one is going to be in um, Holland, it's um, this conference between Paper and Pixels that's at the Jaffa Kema Center, where I'm actually trying to add a chapter to this book. And, uh, the next year, I'm gonna be going back to Virginia Tech, uh, where, um, we're gonna have a symposium and we're looking at the idea of feelings and dreams and, uh, the architecture of levity. But I guess as a big project, I just started last year and I'm gonna, you know, do more archival research. I'm starting to look back into Carlos Arta's work and also its relationship with this avant-garde musician, Luigi Nono and uh, trying to really look at time in its faithful nature of time, weather, and tempo in the work of Carlos Carpa.
0: Well, that, that sounds fascinating. Um, I think that'll be a good project, and I'll look forward to uh, following up on it uh, in the future.
1: Uh, yeah, thank you very much.
0: Well, so, Federico, I want to thank you for being on our show today. I, I very much enjoyed it, and I hope our listeners did as well. So, um, take care. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. This was my conversation with Assistant Professor Federica Goffi about her book, Time Matters, Invention and Reimagination in Built Conservation, The Unfinished Drawing and Building of St. Peter's, the Vatican, published by Ashgate in 2013. I hope that you enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for listening. Please join us for another episode at newbooksnetwork.com. Until then, this is your host, Brant Tate, signing off. Take care.